0: Welcome to the Psychology of Case Management podcast, a show that helps you use psychological ideas to strengthen your relationship with your catastrophically injured clients and their professional network, so you can achieve more for your clients and feel more fulfilled in your role. Hello and welcome to today's episode. I'm Dr. Shabnam Berry-Khan and we are going to be talking about vicarious trauma, Working in the personal injury field, vicarious trauma is, I would say, it's an occupational hazard. It's kind of part of the job and something that we, I think we assume is going to be there in some way, but we don't necessarily talk about it, I don't think. For those who uh, want a bit of a definition of what vicarious trauma is, I guess it's the, the sort of leftover emotional reaction when, I guess, you're continuously exposed to trauma. Other people's trauma. And that can lead to traumatic stress, compassion fatigue, burnout, all of those things that we don't ever want to feel. So today I will be talking with a colleague, Rosie Dixon, who is a brain injury case manager and occupational psychologist with HCML. And um, she and I sort of connected um, over, I think, LinkedIn. And we were—I think—the topic of vicarious trauma might have come up, and um, we've connected, and we thought, you know what? We're going to do a podcast episode just about vicarious trauma, just a chat. So this is kind of a conversation between two two colleagues, you could say, two peers about vicarious trauma. So welcome,
1: Rosie Dixon. Thank you, Shabnam. It's very <laughs> lovely to be here. I'm delighted to be joining
0: you. Yeah, it's brilliant. I I, I love the way that we we kind of um, connected just sort of by accident I guess Uh, sort of there was a a post wasn't there about vicarious trauma or something or other or we we ended up talking about it Mm. and I don't know if that's because we're both psychologists because we're both case managers it just felt like something that that seemed natural to connect over so it's really great that you're here um, to talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think we just clicked on this topic, possibly for both psychologists, I don't know, or possibly because it's an area that we just don't really talk about in the case management world. Mm.
0: Yeah, because it is prevalent, isn't it? It's not, um, you know, sort of a something that kind of happens to, you know, some people who work with lots of trauma. I think it's much more prevalent than perhaps we might Mm. recognise even. I don't know. I don't have any statistics. Do you?
1: No, I don't. But the thing that struck me about it is that in other professions, you would be trained in how to deal with it. I presume as a mm. clinical psychologist, you have sessions on how you cope with you know, the emotional difficulties of hearing really tough stories day in, yeah. day out. Whereas as case managers, if we come from an occupational therapy background or a physiotherapy background, or like I do, an occupational psychology background, there's mm. nothing in the training that prepares you for dealing with other people's trauma. I mean, mm. literally nothing. So I haven't sat through any tutorials or seminars on it. So it's all learning on the job, and that. Ah, oh, gosh, I didn't quite really tough. think of that. Yeah, yeah. A case manager, where you're already in quite an isolated position. Hmm. Yeah,
0: definitely, and I suppose when you think about where the trauma exists as well, it's not just in the meetings that you have with your clients. It's in videos that you, you know, you might have have seen, you know, in training. It might be reviewing case files, you know, hearing it, just even uh, as a sort of uh, written written sort of you know piece of information about the client. And I suppose at that point it might, you know, that could be a bit of a, a sign, I suppose, that, gosh, uh, you know, at the point of getting a referral, do I want to take this on? This seems heavy. So it, it kind of, it kind, you know, we're exposed to it all the time, all this trauma, all the time. And I just, I'm just very mindful of where we're directly putting ourselves in to a, a work field where we're just not going to get away from it. Not us as clinical psychologists or psychologists or case managers or lawyers or uh, therapists or carers but even our admin staff and our allied sort of HR folk etc you know kind of all exposed to it and we're all sort of in the same pool of of this trauma but our clients have experienced and yeah, I just find it,
1: you know, it's quite a lot really, isn't it? It is a lot. And, you know, it's right from, well, like you said, the referral letters and so on. But I think it, for mm. me, it often comes alive when I'm doing the INA visit and mm. you, know, you sort of set it up to be, say, for example, the teenager that you're seeing and their parent or, or yeah. you know, the young adult and their, their partner. You know, often you ask yeah. for somebody to be there. So, you know, you're going to be going to visit somebody and somebody from their family is going to be there to support them. But what also happens then, as well as talking to the person, is you also often have the the person that's there as support giving their side of the story. Mm. And sometimes that involves where they were when they got the phone call or that they got the phone call to say the accident happened, they ran out the house and two streets down, there was their son in the road and the accident had just taken place a few minutes before. And those stories add on to the client's situation Mm. to mean that you know there have been some occasions where I've left INA visits particularly Mm. when there have been several members of the family there and they you know they've all talked about the situation they were in when they had the call where I've left and I've just felt so heavy with that story you know that I've driven away a bit I thought right I need to stop I need to get to service station because I know I need to have a take a moment and you know I've had more than one occasion where I've sat in the car and cried yeah because I've just thought that family is going through something so difficult and mm-hmm. so tough and for those two hours that I was immersed in it mm-hmm. it was it was really hard but you go away leaving you know leaving them to carry on dealing with it it's yeah. it's a lot yeah
0: yeah I suppose that sense of continuous exposure is it takes on a different meaning when you see it's within that family context um you know I guess we have the opportunity to leave Um, albeit we have our you know we have a a range of different clients and the the exposure to the trauma that they've experienced is obviously going to be a different thing but yeah you're absolutely right the and I think at the INA stage it can often be very raw can't it it's the stage where maybe they haven't really talked to a I mean clients will have talked obviously to solicitors and and various other people but in terms of a continuous a contact person who's there on the ground in their home I think it I think I think that you know the emotion that can be expressed um knowing that you're in you know you 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 will be around for a while assuming you've been appointed of course as a case manager you know you're the person I can go to with this stuff you need to hear it and it often can be a barrage can't it
1: Um, yeah Uh, and maybe for the, the the family members it is the first time They've mm. had the, the the opportunity to to say it to a professional, yeah. Because they yeah. might have been keep you know keeping a step back in all the other appointments, all the medical appointments where you know th- there the, the were really important medical issues to be attended to. Mm. Um, but this is their this is their you know an opportunity, and sometimes that can be it can be so hard to sit with them when they you know go through that and and end up breaking down themselves in tears. You're the strong one as the professional listening to that story. Yeah. And reassuring yeah. them about the next steps and what's going to happen. And, yeah, yeah it, it can be hard then leaving.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. And that's a really interesting... Yeah, that, that is sometimes how we're perceived as personal injury professionals, I think, and particularly case managers within that, that, um, you know, you, you, you should be able to handle this.
1: Mm.
0: And that's... I, I do think we do... define we how you like but um I think there's a lot of people a lot of professions within the personal injury umbrella that would take that on as a as a as a sort of role that you know we should be taking this we should be able to cope with this we should be able to you know sit there and listen to this and I actually I'm not sure that I agree with that I think we do need to listen to it of course and understand it but there are there are ways and means to make to make that optimal not just for the clients but for us as practitioners I suppose the first thing is recognizing as a as a profession as a group of professions that we are we are naturally I guess rescuers that's you know to use a psychodynamic idea you know we are we we you know, we have a we are helping professions, we want to help people, so we are more likely to put ourselves in that in the position of uh, wanting to listen to be empathic. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and if we're not, if it's not part of our training, as you say, uh, potentially we're at risk a little bit to experiencing more vicarious trauma than we perhaps could if structures were different, if training was perhaps a different, if you know, if if we were maybe not taking on that role quite in that. Or, you know, sort of throwing ourselves all-immersing way. I don't
1: know. Yeah, and I suppose it depends to some extent on the organisational structure in which we work. Yeah. So yeah. I've been fortunate to be able to be self-employed for the whole 18 years that I've mm. been a case manager. And one thing that that gives me is flexibility and freedom to take cases when I've got space but equally to say no to cases when I'm too busy. But maybe it's yeah. not just too busy. Maybe it's when I've got so many cases that do bear a heavy emotional load mm. that I'm able to step in and say, actually, I think I'm I think I'm at my limit at the moment. I don't yeah. know that every case manager has that freedom, but I really value it myself, actually.
0: Mm. So it's not just about the quantity of your caseload, it's the quality
1: yeah.
0: of the, you know, the complexity and the emotional impact it has on you. Yes. On you know, and, as per and, your individual differences. Yeah, and, and where you
1: are at the time. Yeah, in, your, in your life. So in, I had yes. a period about uh, a year ago now, actually, where I had a very really significant bereavement. My my dad died. Oh, yeah, and. I had a, you know, a week or so, a couple of weeks off work and then I went back to work and I was absolutely fine managing my caseload and mm. writing progress reports and dealing with clients. It was absolutely fine. But I was referred a case that had um, significant fatality in, as, in the accident. And I knew that the person I would be going to see yeah, would God. be in yeah. very raw stages of grief.
0: And yeah. I took
1: some time to have a think about will I accept this referral or not Mm. And I suppose it was about four hours that I just was getting on with my work, but subconsciously it was probably ticking away, working out, is this a good is this a good case for me to take or not? And I just made a decision that it wasn't because I thought at the moment, I'm just a bit fragile psychologically mm. and that isn't a good place for, it isn't good for that client to have a case manager that's feeling a bit psychologically fragile. Yeah. They need yeah. um, to be, to be um, looked after by somebody that's really strong. And it wasn't a good thing for me, it wouldn't have been a good thing for me to do. So I was mm. able to say, no, no, I, didn't, I wasn't able to take that referral at that time. And that's really important, I think, to oh, be able absolutely. To be honest about that, no matter what your organizational structure, but to have the, the freedom and the flexibility.
0: Yeah, no, I, I completely, I completely agree. There, there is something, uh, there, there's something about knowing yourself in, in, your, in your story and there's something about being able to manage that. I, I suppose some people might have responded to that scenario, a similar scenario, as wanting to kind of be there for someone who is going through something similar perhaps, but mm. actually there may, not be, there may not have been space that would have been relatively high risk in you know, doing the bunny ears inverted commas Mm. because there may not have been enough space for both griefs to be there you know it makes me wonder how we might need to think about you know are we doing this for our clients or are we doing this for ourselves actually to some degree but Mm. I think grief is a really important one I think like you say the the stage of life that you are I I remember when my mum passed away just over three years ago and I just struggled to take on Treating psychology cases, I just couldn't do it, and it just felt like my world had changed so much that I was almost actually to the point of evaluating whether I wanted to carry on doing psychology to some degree. Yeah. Um, although that, you know, I think that was just my initial response, mm. but that sense of self doubt, I guess, and and then feeling sort of guilty about about that because sort of death is normal but injury is not um yeah. and how I was sort of appraising my my situation and and how unhelpful I felt very at risk if you like to developing tra- you know traumatic you know an emotional reaction to 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 that of what my clients are you know going through I think also when I was very new to case management um and and to psychology as well actually that was that that was a very wobbly time in terms of the exposure and the complexity of some of our clients. And just thinking about how that can be a stage of professional development that might make someone seem more vulnerable mm. to some of the traumas that our clients experience.
1: Yeah, it's good to have that self awareness, though, as you described, that mm. you just knew that was a time in life when yeah. you were struggling with other issues. Yeah
0: yeah, definitely. And the point that you made about the support, who you're working with, the organization, there is a role. it's It's really important that an organization appreciates you know the these kind of um, life experiences and how they then sit with what our clients are needing um and being realistic about that and putting the right kind of support in place and having that maybe built in naturally. I'm a big fan of that and certainly something that we try and do at PsychWorks and SBK case management, you know, kind of life, It does happen, basically, to to us. We are human as well, at the end of the day. And in order to be the best we can be for our clients, we have to think about what will protect us somewhat from the fact that the work we do is very heavy. Yeah. So obviously, you you talked about, um, you know, when when Dad passed away and how difficult that was. What what was it? Did did you have a sense of kind of what that might that was feeling like? What signs? you were experiencing because I'm wondering if that could be something that you know that self you know if we don't have that self-awareness or maybe we haven't got to it that to that stage of of understanding ourselves because you know this is a this is a new sort of reflection on ourselves but how you know I guess I'm just trying to think you know what what are the signs that someone might be experiencing vicarious trauma
1: yeah, I think um, so. it's possibly going to be different for, for different people. Mm. But I think becoming more and more sensitive to these stories as we mm. hear them and perhaps little signs that we're changing our behaviour. So if I think back to when I was first a case manager when I was in Guildford, I had um, a client in Dartford. I used to drive around the M25. So I used to drop mm. the kids at school and nursery and what have you two hours around the N25 to see the client, see the client for a couple of hours. And then I'd be two hours back. And I, because I was busy, I didn't have, I had to get back to the school pickup. I didn't have time to stop at a service station and have lunch, but it was no problem to me because I just ate while I was driving. And I drank a flask of tea when I left at nine o'clock. And I just sort of packed it all in. And this client had been involved in a very traumatic car crash. And I used Mm. to visit her every month. And every month, she would return to talking about the same stories. And I gradually found that I wasn't eating in the car anymore. I was making the time to stop at a service station after I'd seen her to have something to eat because I was feeling it wasn't mm. very good to be eating and driving. And I wasn't leaving my phone on to deal with the distraction of somebody phoning, even though I, there was no hands-free most days twenty years mm. ago, so yeah, I just had to right. listen to it ring in my bag. But I stopped doing that because I found that too distracting. I started turning it onto silent, which is a habit I've just kept to this day. It's it's you know, a really good habit actually. Just mm. get in the car, put your phone on silent. But I started mm. making all these little changes, and they're really good on the one hand because they were all making me safer. But actually they were driven by this feeling of anxiety about car journeys. Mm. And as I was seeing other cup cases and I was hearing other quite random situations that we hear, random, you know, accidents that happen, I was thinking about them more and more. And I suppose it got to be a point where I started to think, well, do I need that extra behaviour or, you know, what's that Mm. about? Is that my anxiety and I need to try and ditch that? or is that a good safety thing that yes i'll keep that behavior in place mm. but little signs like that i think i've noticed
0: yeah that's really interesting gosh i'm 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 impressed by your self awareness that's that's fascinating <laughs> um but yes that heightened sense of danger i suppose is mm. is part yeah it's the the world suddenly seems less safe or you need to create yes. some sense of safety i suppose i think my my version would be shutting down like kind of a sense of numbness Mm. i i know i do that (laughs) which is um it's not good but it takes good supervision to remind me through you know gentle questioning and curiosity how did that make you feel and goodness i'm really curious about how you're describing that it seems devoid of emotion basically (laughs) and at that point i might Sort of snap out, not snap out of it, but kind of wake up a little bit. To gosh, right. yeah, I, you know, because I, I think I do find, I do, I do find that a bit too overwhelming, actually.
1: Yeah,
0: and you know that that particular story or, or that that client is, you know, I, I, I do, and I, and that can be coupled with headaches, um, and feeling very sort of physically. Uh, just fatigued and 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 just just yeah really tired, and so I f- I tend to feel it more in my body than I do in my heart. If that makes sense,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, it sounds like you're getting you're you're accessing really good supervision there. That you're with somebody that's able mm-hmm. to reflect that back to you. Yeah, is that something you have as part of your organisation?
0: It, it was. Well, it's, it's
1: definitely sort of that concept
0: of reflective supervision is definitely. Uh, it's a very clinical psychology thing, actually. Uh, And it's, you know, so have I trained, but that's definitely something that we try and incorporate because, you know, a bit like the sort of whole premise of this, this podcast series is that, you know, we are human at the end of the day and our humanness makes us, you know, great at what we do, but with that comes baggage. Um, And sometimes that baggage is heavier with some clients than it is with others. And it's just having a space to acknowledge that. So we're not always just talking about compliance issues and, Sort of intellectualizing of our clients' needs, yeah. Um, that there is, uh, you know, that there is a space to process what's going on in our lives and how that then impacts on our clients and vice versa, yeah.
1: Um,
0: but that, that, I think that might be a psychology thing actually.
1: I think the reflective supervision is when it's done very consciously, like that, Mm. yeah. I think, I think you're right, but I think within. Within my work, I would access it by specifically asking for time to mm. speak to um, a colleague, you know, supervisor, somebody that I could just actually carve out a bit of time. Right. Because the regular supervision is often more, like you said, more management issues, and, and that's fine. They have to be attended to. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think it is about balance, isn't it, really? But, mm. And it's nice to be able to sort of pick and choose that. It's It's great that... That you've got that opportunity because I I, I remember once uh, for a period of time having a very uh, specific space for, for 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 supervision and it almost it almost always got taken up by you know progress goals oriented stuff you know organisational kind of priorities really and I, I remember thinking gosh that's quite unhelpful to mm-hmm. to some degree massively helpful you know, when I wasn't overwhelmed by the, um, you know, the, the client's circumstance or just feeling just a bit shitty that day. It, 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 yeah. It just felt like there wasn't a space to do what you've just described. So that I'm really glad that that's available to you. Yeah. I wasn't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, if that's sort of available to our wider colleagues. Cause of course for us, supervision is quite a clinical therapeutic there, but I guess for our law colleagues, you know, I, I think because our law colleagues are often exposed to, uh, as well, the the traumas of the,
1: yeah, of
0: the you know of, of the journeys and the experiences of our clients, and and you know, as humans as well, that you know the, the emotional reaction is going to be available, you know, is going to be there for them too. And I just wonder, actually, it just occurred to me, I am not really sure what law lawyer lawyer types have. You do. Do, you,
1: yeah. do you do do? I don't know. And I suppose, yeah. uh, yes, you are operating outside those structures then mm. the sort of formal structures of reflective supervision but also operating outside the informal structures that exist for say um often well, I have a very good friend who's an intensive care nurse and actually mm. she describes that the informal support for dealing with what they have to go through is fantastic That you know mm. after a shift they'll they'll go for a drink well this was pre-covid obviously people would go for a drink people would really offload there'd be a lot of dark humor there's a real camaraderie Mm. in those sorts of groups of professionals that are dealing with you know traumatic events going on at work whereas I suppose Mm. for solicitors perhaps less so because you know but I suppose those people would have to actively look for who's the person in my organisation I'm going to be able to go to and say I just need to go for a coffee I just need a bit of a chat about stuff yeah. It's all getting a bit much You know you'd you'd have to be quite proactive probably
0: to mm. find those
1: informal support structures that are going to help you
0: Yeah definitely I, Yeah it's tricky and I I don't know But the stereotype of um, our legal colleagues is um, you know, that that they kind of you know, they, they are um, very uh, sort of formal um, and almost, you know, can, you know, quite sort of hardy, I suppose. And I, I think the more I've, I've worked in this field and the more I've got to know, you know, legal, legal peers, uh, I, I realise that actually that's not the case. But the stereotype, I wonder how much, how hard it is to kind of shed that at times with colleagues. But maybe I that's another episode, I think, <laughs> I to get a law colleague on.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to know how they manage that. But, and I suppose perhaps they're missing the informal contact that we all mm. used to have through face-to-face conferences and training yeah. events and so on where you would bump into, mm. you know, cross-professional cross training. Mm. Yeah, Those no, could be good for developing a network and developing friendships outside true. of work, which, you know, they could be people you lean on from time to time. But yeah, no, that's true. But missing that at the moment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, though, times will be a changing. Fingers crossed. Um, so what do you do then from a self-care perspective to self-care. sort of manage this? You know, what, what is it that works for you? Because obviously everyone's different. And as you know, there's no judgment here. I mean, it's just people need to find a thing. You need to have a thing. I mean, yeah. I don't really care what your thing is as long as you've got a thing, you know. And I say that, you know, because I, I, it took me a long time to work out what my thing is, you know. And I, I just, I, I urge many people, you know, everyone to kind of work out what their thing is. But yeah, I don't know. What, so what, what's your, do you have a thing? And is, if you're, your, your, your self-care thing, or things even, if you're lucky, <laughs>
1: Um, I suppose I have lots of bits and pieces of self-care I mean I have a dog that mm. I walk every morning and I love walking my mm. dog if I'm, if I'm walking on my own I have loads of podcasts sometimes yeah. funny podcasts sometimes yeah more psychological podcasts mm. just a whole variety and yeah. I walk several times a week with friends so that's just good social chat very good yeah good connection so I have a, sort of bit. You know, small things like that, which, well, mm. not small so much, but every day, every day different yeah. yeah. ways of, of, of managing self-care. And then I, a couple of years ago, I went through a period of personal therapy mm. and I chose um, a therapy called cognitive analytic therapy, mm. cat therapy, which were you- Lovely. And, yeah, it was, it's so, I mean, to wow. me, as a case manager, because you know how you have to be super organized and structured mm. as a case manager? Yes. Well, yes. this is a super organized, structured therapy. <laughs> it's Good 16 match. sessions. Yeah, it was perfect. <laughs> there's an introduction, which finishes with a reformulation letter. There's a middle section, which is all the hard work of, mm. of therapy. And then there's an ending section, which is which finalizes in a goodbye letter so it's very structured and it's you, you can look at you can book it into your diary you can look ahead and said you know say I need this amount of time and I need this amount of funds to be able to to you know give this to myself mm-hmm. which it, it just appealed to me at a personal level but I didn't go I didn't um, access therapy because of work issues I was having but everything comes up in this in this therapy because it's about looking into your childhood patterns of relating to (laughs) pushing and behaving and seeing how those are carrying on today so work did come up and the thing that really helped me actually was I would have said before I went into therapy that I was quite self-aware and I Mm. had quite a rich emotional language I would have said (laughs) having had therapy I don't think I was at all it really increased my level of awareness of Mm. my emotional reactions and particularly early signs of emotional reactions and it really increased my ability to be curious and to sort of take a step outside of myself and look in and think what's going on there what is that showing you why are you reacting in that way where might that be heading if you carry on how can you stop and do things differently and that was really really powerful for me Mm. absolutely fabulous I'm a big fan of. cat therapy
0: what a um, successful therapy that's amazing that's exactly
1: what oh your cat therapist must have been amazing she was (laughs) totally totally amazing yeah yeah absolutely but I think that self that self-awareness and that that curiosity Mm. boost I mean I hadn't really I didn't have the language around curiosity before therapy I would have just thought I was generally quite self-aware but actually having a real curiosity approach it's yeah. so, so helpful. And that's probably the biggest self-care thing that I have going on for me now. And I imagine I will for the rest of my working life because once mm. it's in there, once it's yeah. in, it's your way of um, analysing your reactions. It, it doesn't leave you. Well, it hasn't done, you know, in the past couple of years. So yeah. that's a big big one for me.
0: Yeah. Gosh, How that's an you? amazing one. Okay. Yeah. Well, obviously as a psychologist, I do have a therapist as well, but that's, yeah. you know, like, Sometimes I wonder if I do it a little bit, not out of habit, as but but there's an expectation. Mm. Um, I love my therapist. I think she's great. She she's incredibly gentle with me. I'm a very I can be quite harsh on myself, and she just just helps me reframe things in such gentle way. Which when you are exposed to the kind of work that we are exposed to, and the drive to to be supportive to clients and to and to run a business as as I'm trying to do etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah there is there's a lot of space to be mm-hmm. very sort of critical and you know um and 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 hard, trying to be I suppose high achieving but for the benefit of you know our clients and, and those who work with us um etc and she's very gentle and with that gentleness I, I it's really opened my mind up a lot more to. Uh, meditative m- mindful mm. ideas um, which I, I I find I was I've got to say I thought I was doing quite mechanically before because it's that's you know, what people do it's the cool thing to do now, isn't it? <laughs> mindfulness <laughs> I want to be trendy um, but you know actually it was part of um, it became a big part of my training experience um, when I was trained to be a clinical psychologist and you know it's it's part of, it's part of the third wave psychology ideas like acceptance and commitment therapy and compassion focused therapy etc these you know they're not uncommon ideas and I guess I'm, I'm quite a spiritual person and I, I realized just how, um, how linked to spirituality the ideas were sort of breathing and you know stopping and, and thinking doing something a bit you know sort of, ex- uh, sort of letting things pass by and they are you know let, letting them be etc. And so that's been a really not. Ni- it's been nice to be able to say I'm doing it be- because it ha- and it carries meaning rather mm. than I'm doing it because you know it's it's the trendy thing to do or it's. And I, I, I did try and introduce it to our personal injury case managers group, uh, and you know a few people did turn up, which was really good. But uh, it made me realise as well that I think it it it's something that possibly could. Carry value in the case management world, certainly, and I wonder in the personal injury world, you know, large, but but it's it takes. I think there's a process that you need to go through beforehand. Perhaps maybe it's it's got to sort of make sense rather than just do it because. But Mm -hmm. having said that, you know, slowing, you know, if, if slowing up, slowing down to speed up feels like it makes sense to you, then you know, maybe. You know, I, and I am someone who needs to slow down to speed up. But you know, I know, I know. Like for example, you have mentioned that 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 that's not you know particularly something that that floats your boat. Kind of, I have always been a bit of a Pilates, Karate kind of enthusiast in the past. So I guess it sort of fits in many ways. I hadn't really yeah. thought about it like that, but there's definitely a bit. But spars that's my other big thing I'm not gonna lie I do like a good
1: spa I do too yeah Yeah. (laughs) and actually I mean another one for me is um on a Sunday afternoon I take time or sometimes it's a Friday depends I take time (laughs) to sit with a glass of wine or a gin and tonic and I paint my nails Oh. And it's such a vain thing to do, but I love it. It's so relaxing because everybody in the family knows that if I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm painting my nails and I've got a drink, I am not to be disturbed as in, oh, could you help me find my school bag? Or or can you just leave the <laughs> dishwasher? Or, I'm, I'm off <laughs> duty. It's a real you know, symbol of I'm not yes. doing any, any household chores. I'm not helping anybody. This is my time. So Very I love good. sitting, painting my nails and then just being incapable of doing anything for the next hour because I have to let them dry yeah yeah so that's probably as mindful as I get because it's, that's um, great though Very yeah, quite sort of takes time yeah
0: no it does and there's um a sort of process to it the stroking
1: yes
0: you yes. know and and uh, uh you can't do it quickly anyway no, let's exactly. be honest you can't You'll do it quickly you have watch to do it carefully,
1: yeah and if a friend happens to be around then I'm quite happy to paint other people's nails as well so oh well great sometimes it turns into a bit more of just me
0: yeah well what do you say Friday and Sunday and there (laughs) (laughs) Sheffield though it's a bit of a way oh it's a bit of a trek yeah well you know (laughs) we'll see what we can do Oh, that is really interesting really really good talking to you I'm I'm wondering if maybe we can round up our conversation which otherwise would go on and on with some maybe some tips top tips I like to say um about I guess what what you feel might be helpful to our audience from your experience about thinking around The impact of the work we do on ourselves in terms of that vicarious trauma in terms of emotional reactions and if you had two or three ideas that you might be able to share
1: yeah well I think one of them for me would be being aware of your limitations and Mm. setting boundaries and feeling confident that it's okay to say no if you feel you're overloaded Mm. it's a good way of protecting yourself from From the effects of Vicarious trauma Mm. would be one. And another would be for me taking that space within whatever the supervisory structures are in your organisation to reach out and say, I actually need something that's more emotionally attuned. I don't quite know what the word is. I need more than the sort of management type of supervision. I just need some space to talk about a case or to talk about Mm. how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. I think it would be it's important to reach out for that when you know when you need it yeah the third one for me would be being really curious about your own emotional reactions and so, so that you can step in early so that mm-hmm. you can think I need some self-care in now because you yeah. This is becoming slightly too much for me. I'm, you know, I'm really distracted, or I'm getting a bit anxious, or I'm fretting about my client outside of work time. Those mm. little signs that actually you're carrying your work yeah. outside of work times, I think, would be um, would be another one to be really. Yeah.
0: No, that's that's brilliant, and yeah, I, I can see just how helpful those those would be for me. Um, definitely supervision. Of course, I have to say that. And reflective supervision, you know, which I think is linked to what you were saying about that space to be able to understand the role we have in the work we do and the impact it has on us and being really honest about that. And it's just really hard. It's really hard to say when you're a rescuer by nature. Mm -hmm. But, um, oh gosh, that was, I didn't like that very much. That's okay, because that's the truth. And the truth is what it is. So a space to be authentic I guess um, is is crucial in the work we do. I would also say um, that work to home transition. I think you mentioned it in terms of sandwiches in the car, but it made me think that actually for me um, I, I'm, I if I can avoid driving, I would absolutely avoid driving to see a client hundred percent because i for me that's that's a very that's a very easy space for me to just switch my brain off once I've done my emailing post meeting you know check you know maybe documented my my actions and put my bits and bobs on cue notes and all the rest of it I know that when I get home I'm done Mm. I am done I can put everything away and just be present and available to my family Um, something about home being a safe space that's been a lot harder obviously in the current climate But and I do miss it, and it has made a massive difference um, to general mental well-being. But when things return to a a more normal way of working, I think um, that boundary, Mm. I think that buffer is is going to be really, really helpful.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great.
0: And um, I think checking in with colleagues. I think you talked about being self-aware. Sometimes that's that's quite hard. To um, recognize in ourselves, particularly if a bit like me, where you shut down a little bit. Mm. Um, And actually, if we can be supportive and aware on behalf of our colleagues as well, that makes for that sense of camaraderie, that sense of shared understanding. And it helps develop that personal awareness. And I think that occupation, the, the occupational awareness that actually this does happen, this is real, and it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. Otherwise, we do just sort of exist with our own pain um, on our own, and that feels like a very sad way to sort of live th- with the work we we do. when everyone's kind of doing it themselves, actually, let's open it up, let's let's share it, let's talk about it. Yes,
1: yeah, so and um, giving other people permission to do the same. Yes. Take the yes. That way, you then absolutely. Give, you know, because it's it's not just the case managers and the people going out and about that experience it. It's no. the people in the office that are sometimes I, processing I, the the paperwork and so on, and picking absolutely. up the pieces from us when we're out and about. That um, yeah, absolutely
0: hundred percent. No, well, they do read our reports and they hear the you know they they may be manning the crisis line or whatever. It's um yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Oh, Rosie, what a lovely conversation to have, albeit about a difficult topic. Yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your your experiences. Oh, that
1: was great, Shadna. It was really interesting to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. I'll wrap up then for
0: now, and uh, so to say thank you to Rosie Dixon at uh, HCML for joining us today. That was so so nourishing. I think, um, and I think permission is exactly. Uh, what I hope our listeners will have got from this, amongst other things. Um, So if you did enjoy this episode, please do like, share, comment um, on whatever platform you listen to. And well, I look forward to seeing you in another episode. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Before you go... If you enjoyed the episode today, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it on whatever platform you're listening on and share and like on your social media profiles. Word of mouth is the best way for us to grow and to be a continuous resource for all. And if there's any topic you wish for us to cover, please drop us a line on our website. Thank you so much for all your support.